Hey, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. My guest today, David Griffin, who won a NBA championship as general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2016 and was a part of a great deal of NBA and Western Conference success in his 17 years in the front office with the Phoenix Suns. Griff and I hit a lot on head coaching in the NBA, head coaching searches, college coaches like Jay Wright, John Beeline, how they might fit into the NBA, and how the league views the processes of hiring a coach, putting together a front office. We talked some about the Hall of Fame inductees, Steve Nash, Jason Kidd, Grant Hill, who all were a part of the Suns when Griff worked there. I think you're going to enjoy this one as much as I did. So let's get right to it. Here's Griff. Welcome into David Griffin. Griff, how are you, man? Doing really well. Thanks, Woj. Have you gotten the heat fixed in your southeastern United States hotel room? Is that under, under yes. control now? Yes, we are functional. We are, we are warm. <laughs> we are not Dante DiVincenzo warm, but we are warm. <laughs> I just saw something that that was the lowest rated finals and NCAA final game in a while. I, I guess I could see, I guess because it did get away from them. But uh, man, Villanova is, you know, what Jay Wright's built there is remarkable. I mean, it really is remarkable um, that they have become sort of, you know, right there with Duke, Carolina as, you know, one of the national powers. And like, it's not going away. If Jay stays, you know, they're going to stay at that level. Yeah, it's it's remarkable to me. So I think part of the ratings uh, would probably be attributed to the fact that these these schools don't have high variance freshmen that everybody's watching. You know, they don't have the yep. one and done kid that draws everybody attention. They have kids that develop over time, and both of those programs are so good from a player development standpoint that I think people lose sight sometimes of the fact that. Once upon a time, college kids got significantly better while they were in school, <laughs> and you could enjoy watching the arc of their career while they were in college as well. And that Villanova team has just done an unreal job, and Jay's almost kind of rewritten the the formula in terms of recruiting and, and style of play. You know, Jay has had chances at the NBA, and teams have called him in recent years, and he has said no. Uh, and I don't think he's gotten very close with Eddie. I don't think he's gotten too far down the road. He's thought about it. And I know Jay has talked, you know, just he knows people in the NBA and has good relationships. And I know he's bounced the idea around as almost every really successful college coach does because they all think about it. But some of the openings that are there this year, you know, there's just some jobs right now. And you know this, Griff, you're, you're not going to win and you're going to get, you're going to get spit out in two or three years. And they're not good organizations. They're not well run. And I think Jay's, if he ever does it, you know, he can be pretty picky because I think he's going to have that opportunity. It's not going away just because he may not win the national title next year. Yeah. And I, I think he's in a situation not unlike what uh, Brad Stevens was when Boston came to him and, and that job spoke to him because of the presence of Danny Ainge, because he believed in the stability of ownership. Jay can be incredibly selective. I mean, he's, he's built what obviously is a dynasty at this point. So there's certainly not going to be a rush. And I think for him, as it would be for any significant college coach, 
it's going to be about fit in, in belief that your vision of what it should look like can actually be reached and that you can be in lockstep with the guys you're, you're doing it with. And I think that's really significant. A very successful NBA GM who was advising a college coach about this recently told me, he said to the college coach, when they were talking about what they should be looking at that's important in the NBA, and the college coach is pretty fixated on roster, and the GM said to him, what you should be most fixated on, what should be most important to you is the owner and then general manager. Almost forget the roster because that can change quickly. Things happen. Would you buy that? I absolutely would buy that to the extent that you almost forget the roster, maybe not quite that much, Mm -hmm. but certainly the most important thing is going to be the owner and the GM. And, and again, if those three people can be in lockstep, you have a chance to be successful no matter what the existing roster looks like, unless you're in a situation where you're really cap hamstrung or or you don't have pick assets into the future. And, and some teams are in that situation as well. But I think good ownership and the, and the right fit with your general manager can overcome a great deal of the things that would set you back as a team. Yeah, and John Beeline too. You know, I've known John since a very close friend of mine from that I went to college with, Uh, Mike McDonald was his assistant coach at Canisius, and Mike graduated from Bonaventure, and he got like a GA job at Canisius, worked his way up, and then John left Division II LeMoyne, where his son Patrick is now, came to Canisius, and this is like, when you think about where John started, he had no assistant coaches to bring with him from Division II to Division I. He knew the guys who were on the staff. This might have been the first time ever a guy gets fired, and he kept all three assistants who were on the fired staff. And Beeline, this is how naive he was about, and I was thinking about this last night, watching him coach for national championship again. He walks into the office that morning, his first day on the job after he gets hired, and the three assistants are all there waiting for him and eager. And he looks at them and says, okay, what do you guys do? Like, he'd never had full-time assistants. He had like a part-time one at LeMoyne. He didn't know what assistant coaches did all day in Division One, And he's like, well, whatever it is you guys do, like, start doing it. And so everybody got to work. And, uh, you know, it's funny how they measure the Hall of Fame coaches. And, listen, there's certain guys in college who have stayed in one place, they've broken a lot of rules, and they've won a lot, and they're in the Hall of Fame. And to me, like, Hall of Fame to me especially is – you know, I think Pete Carrill didn't win championships and did it at a different level at Princeton and gets in the hall and absolutely belongs there. Is like, what impact did you have on style of play, on how you played, and what you won at the levels you were at, and how you did it? And I think John may not get into the Hall of Fame, but I'd put him up against. Listen, this guy has run legitimately clean programs. He has not broken a rule, and. He's done it in a way differently than a lot of other guys he's competed against. And I don't know if he'll ever get in, but I know this. Like, if you gave me one team in one season and he threw out 20 coaches and 20 teams, and he said, who's going to coach this group better than anybody else, it's it's going to be him. Well, and I also think we, we mentioned the player development aspect of Villanova. John, John is right up there with the best of the best from a player development standpoint. Kids get better playing for John. And if you're an NBA team – and you're looking at college coaches, you may not immediately think of John because he's 65 now and he doesn't have the gaudy stats and and the record sometimes that you look at to your point about the Hall of Fame credentials. 
But the two things about John that you'll never be able to shake if you're if you're running a coaching search, one, John makes kids better. And two, the level of admiration and, and frankly, fatherly affection that his former players have for him is unmatched in my experience in, in basketball. I've, I've never been around a player of his that said anything other than incredibly powerfully heartwarming things about coach. He's, he's like a fabric of their lives even after they leave him. And so on a human level, you know he's about all the right things. And again, that's a huge part of what you're looking for when you're trying to bring someone in. So if you know he's a successful coach, if you know he develops players, if you know young kids become better human beings with him, he's checking an awful lot of boxes. Yeah, I've talked with NBA executives about him. There have been guys who have kind of kicked the tires a little bit, and and John's always – no one has moved up. I mean, he's literally – people know the story. He's moved up. He's never been an assistant coach. He's moved up level after level, Division three, two, one. Actually, junior college, three, two, one, and then every level of Division one on his way to Michigan. And probably is not going to happen now. But I think with the right team, I could see him – with like a team like I'm just saying like Denver with Jokic and Millsap like the you know really good passing forwards a good passing group like with the right talent you could see his style fitting yeah and offensively I mean he he's a savant I mean John's one of those guys I've actually gotten to speak with John in the past through Mike Gansey who played for him yeah. at Doors and and talking to to John he, he's an offensive savant on the level where if he chose to go to the NBA as an offensive guru and he was going to be an offensive coordinator, he could certainly do that. And I think what's fascinating is now we've gotten to the point where, one, it's very difficult to find coaches that you're going to feel really comfortable with forgetting everything else. But if you add to it that the league is so young and so many teams have been going through the process of of tanking, quite frankly, and trying to get high-variance, young, draftable assets, it becomes more and more significant to have someone like John that can raise kids in the right culture, that's going to develop them as players and as people. And if all you had John for was five years right now to lay the foundation and the cultural backbone of your organization, he'd be worth it. Yeah. And again, no, a, I don't think yeah. he has any interest in doing it necessarily, but he's such a basketball savant. He'd figure out what he doesn't know very quickly, and everything he does represent could could really be the bedrock for an organization that's been moribund for a long time. Yeah, it's going to be interesting here. There's going to be several openings. There has a chance to be a lot of openings. And, you know, teams will look to college again and, you know, Brad Stevens has made everybody in the league want to find the next Brad Stevens. Well, Brad may be one and he literally is probably one in a million and there may not be a comparable. But I think you've seen the model change, Griff, from what the college coach that appeals to NBA teams looks like. There was a time when it was John Calipari and Rick Pitino where they wanted the big personality to give them all the power. And he would be the star. And I think both Petito and Calipari found out in the NBA, the player is the star. The coach is never going to be the star. It doesn't work. And having that power and personnel control, 
like that doesn't work either, especially when you don't know the league intimately. And then you saw the next wave of, you know, and the personalities are, were comparable of obviously Brad Stevens and Billy Donovan and coaches who it was about the players and it was not about their ego and it was about working with the general manager in a partnership. And so when you hear people talk about Tony Bennett and his disposition, his personality and Jay Wright and, you know, even when you mentioned a John Beeline, the model for that college to the pro jump has really sort of evolved here from, you know, a decade, 12 years ago. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I I think part of it is what you said in terms of the stars really are the players. Part of it is what you said about Coach Donovan and, and partnership with the front office and an ownership group. I, I think they are very much like-minded and so that attracted them to one another, which I think is critical. And again, we talked a little bit about that fit before. But I think the other thing that's happened, because Brad has been so successful, Brad's somebody who really embraced analytics and advanced analytics and everything he did. He was doing it already in college. And so if you are the type of coach that can implement a program of development an interface with all of the data that teams bring to bear now on decision-making, and you can embrace that sort of input in decision-making, I think it puts you significantly further ahead of the curve than someone who wants to be the decision-making process in and of themselves. And I I think that's a really big development in, in coaching searches. And I think you see this You certainly see it in Major League Baseball to a huge degree. I think you're starting to see it more and more even in the NFL. It's just sort of the wave of the future is is to really be able to integrate all of the talents the organization can bring to bear in a way that makes sense on the floor and can can power and and prop up your, your best assets, which are always your players. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is sponsored by Mattress Firm. Everyone knows how important stretching is before an event. So does Mattress Firm. Except it's your dollar. Your budget stretches further when you're shopping at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a true home run. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this. They are more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor they have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch. Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. Griffin, that's interesting. Like, go back to your coaching search in Cleveland in 2014, right? Right before LeBron yep. returned. Yep. And when you didn't know whether LeBron was returning yet. Coaching searches are fascinating to me because there's so many different directions you can go. You can go guy who's been a head coach, you can go assistant coach, you can go college, and then you entered something new into it. We're going to go Europe. And when you're meeting with candidates and you're trying to evaluate, the NBA is almost (laughs) 
it's a different sport than college basketball. It's, it's a different sport. It's a different game. When you're trying to figure out, when you talk to Tom Izzo or you're talking to, you know, a Bill Self, big time college guys who've not coached in the NBA or a David Blatt who's coached in the Euro League, which is probably a little closer to our game in terms of the pro game. How do you try to figure out who can make the adjustment, who can think, who can surround himself and cut that learning curve down and even temperament, the college temperament of yelling, screaming, which isn't going to work in the NBA. How did you approach it? Well, we went through a great many of the college names that we've talked about now and, and really sort of did our research and, and in different ways reached out to those people to find out if they would have interest. There were a lot of college names involved in, in our initial process because we were also like-minded when Boston hired Brad Stevens. Trent Redden, who was my number two in Cleveland, uh, when we left there together, Trent was very close to Brad and had really sort of put together a thought process around interviewing Brad once before. So the college, the residue of success was on college coaches at that point. So we explored a great many of the names we've talked about and and some others as well. And I, I think where we got was that the job was not viewed as attractive enough for a lot of college coaches that had the level of stability we talked about Coach Wright and Coach Beeline having to really invest in us. They they didn't know me at all. They didn't know Dan Gilbert. Nobody knew whether I was going to be there. So our job was not seen as being the kind of stable job where you go out and hire exactly the person that you want who might be in college, by way of example. And, and, and so at that time, that, Kyrie Irving was not seen – I think people were questioning whether they could build a team and win with Kyrie Irving because – he hadn't evolved into that yet. Well, and the other the other component that made it very difficult was we were doing the coaching search in May, and Kyrie hadn't even committed to stay with us until July. So mm-hmm. people didn't know for sure that Kyrie was going to be there. You know, he was one of the guys that people questioned to some degree whether or not he was even going to sign on long term. So our roster was also seen as being in a state of flux. So what ended up happening was as we went through the process, we we gathered as much information as we could on candidates of all types. And and that's how David got into the search was we were really trying to expand our horizons a little bit and, and learn what we didn't already know. And we felt like we had a template where we were going to have a very young team led by Kyrie and other young players. We were going to have cap space, and we figured we would target kids within the age range of Kyrie and what ended up happening was when LeBron came back, it was just sort of like flipping a switch. So David was the perfect coach for the team we envisioned having, which was a young team that was going to grow and evolve together, and he would have been able to learn and grow on the job at a rate that would have made sense. Unfortunately, what ended up happening was once the decision was made to hire David, and I guess unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, once the decision to hire David was made, Everything sort of fell into place with all of the free agent pursuits we had made, most importantly, LeBron. And and so it just became a mad dash to me. We must win this championship. And so the fit wasn't what we envisioned it being initially because we weren't the kind of team we thought we would be. And ironically, the addition of LeBron made his job infinitely more difficult because of the window in which he was going to have to figure it all out. 
and it just wasn't fair to David, and it really wasn't fair to the group as a whole, the way it all came together. And, you know, in the end, that's that's my fault. If you could do that one over, if you knew that LeBron was going to come back, but no one else did, would you have just waited and filled it in July? Oh, 100%. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we we didn't believe for a second LeBron was coming back at that point. Uh, we really believed he was going to take at least a year and figure out whether or not we could start to build in a positive direction. Remember, I told you all those stable coaches were questioning what we were going to be able to do and whether or not we had a mix that could win. So I certainly thought that LeBron, being the absolute savant of basketball savants, was going to take his time and and watch us from afar and, and try to decide whether or not he could trust our process. And we were really blessed in the sense that he, he chose to, to buy in right away. But I think it certainly changed the dynamic in a way that you know, if we had foreseen that it was that legitimate that he was coming back, we certainly would have done something different at that particular juncture. And again, ownership was very much in lockstep with David and, and we're very much behind the hiring of David as well. And so it became a situation where with what we knew at the time, it was the right decision. When when you're reaching out to college coaches in an NBA search, most do not want to be part of a process. Like, let's say like right now you have an NBA search and you're going to interview, you know, you're going to interview James Borrego, assistant in San Antonio, maybe David Fisdale. We're going to ask for permission on Mike Budenholzer, see if we can get him out of Atlanta. Let, let's just say you have a group of five or six, and most of them are going to be, eh, that's fine. Like, I've got to go in an interview, and, and I'm going to compete for this job. That's not the case with college guys, right? They don't even want it out that, well, some do want it out because they either want to leverage their school or they want to show their boosters because they got knocked out in the second round of the tournament and they're taking heat. They want to show everybody, well, if you don't like me, guess what the NBA does? There's always guys who do want it out, but many don't because it hurts recruiting. It pisses off their president. You have to handle those guys differently than just the normal guy you're asking for permission off an NBA staff, right? Yeah, and it's the same with international coaches, too. David, had he not already made the decision that he was coming to the States and wanted to be in the NBA, would have been very difficult to approach because he had been so incredibly successful in Europe. And it is, once again, incredibly successful in Europe. He would have been very difficult to approach because he wouldn't have wanted that to get out because it would have been bad for his team president. And with college coaches, you certainly have the same thing. I think in some cases there's a situation where they don't want to be perceived as even being part of a search because that lessens them or weakens them as a potential candidate somewhere else. I don't think they want to be anything other than the obvious choice. So the way you have to go about that, and I I don't know this to be the case, so please understand I'm not trying to Mm -hmm. break news. But when (laughs) Phoenix said initially as early as they did that they were beginning a coaching search and that Jay Triano would be part of it, my belief that was that in part that was because the coaches that they needed to meet with and talk to early on in the process needed to know that it was an open job because coaches right. don't want to lobby for another coach's job when it's not open. And so no. it changed yep. the timing of their process quite a bit because of that. And it did. Like a coach like Jeff Van Gundy, who always gets calls and who's talked to teams in recent years, Jeff is never going to even have a conversation with you if there's a coach in place. Now, in this day and age, there's some coaches who don't care about that anymore. And there used to be a code among coaches that you never, you, you don't campaign for someone else's job. You don't meet with a executive while somebody's in the job. And and I know this as much as anybody, at least, Jeff 
grew up in a coaching family. His dad's a coach. His brother's obviously a coach. That that means a lot to him. And teams know that. And, and I'm not saying Phoenix has met or talked to Jeff, but I'm just saying the kind of the guys you're talking about, right, Griff, that Jeff, even if you have an interim in place, he will not have a conversation with you. Yeah, no, no question. And it's part of what you really respect and admire about Jeff is that he stands for something. He he has a set of principles and you know what Jeff is all about. And so if you're going to look at hiring Jeff, you care a great deal about the fact that he is that guy. And I think in, in much the same way, if you're going out and you're talking to college coaches, you're going to get a similar response. And you also have to handle the college search incredibly, incredibly delicately. And I think what you find out when you go through the process of meeting with college coaches, you find out which ones really only want to use your job to get paid more in college because they're the ones that let it get out that you've met. (laughs) Right. You could meet with 20 people and the ones that stand to gain something by letting it get out, they do. And so that's where you really have to be careful, I think, from, from the standpoint of the organization. You can't approach someone in any capacity that you're not really engaged with and believe in because it's probably going to get out that you did and the value of your search is is then lessened as well. What are the mistakes that coaches make in your experience when they come to interview for a job? Like what do you want to, like a lot of coaches, I think there's, I've got my book, right? I've got my big book and this is, this is everything I run and this is what I believe in. And they bring their book with them to an interview. And then there's executives who say, no, man, I just want to connect with you. I don't need all that. I Like we're meeting with you because we probably figure you know your stuff. To me, it's an interesting like how a guy attacks a job. Do I need to get really technical in my interview or do I need to connect with you as a person, as an executive? Like what's been your experience in those interviews and what what resonates maybe with an executive? Well, I think one thing, first of all, it's the most difficult thing we do in the NBA from my standpoint. I believe the hardest thing we do in the front office is hire a head coach. And I think if you're doing it within just the time frame of your coaching search, if you announce in March that you're going to have a search and all you learn about the candidates is between March and whenever you fill the job, you probably didn't know enough about them to hire them in the first place. And I think Sam Presti is a really good example of this. He had interest in Billy Donovan, I think, for years and years intellectually. He was intrigued by the way Billy went about building culture. And so Sam himself went to Florida practices. He got to know Mm -hmm. Billy as a human being, not entirely because he ever thought he would be a candidate for the job, but because he was intrigued by Billy and he paid attention and was a student of the types of coaches he would embrace. And again, I, I don't think it was ever a a slight towards the coach he had at the time, but he was just, he had intellectual curiosity about Billy from a very early period of time. And so I think you'll, you'll find that a lot of front offices have this kind of intellectual curiosity about coaches and, and they have a short list all the time of people they think are really good. That doesn't mean that they want to replace the coach they have, but it means, look, things happen and and we're going to need to know what the next wave looks like. And so Often I think you'll see teams go through a really extended search and talk to what looks like far too many people. And your initial reaction on the outside is to say, boy, they don't have any idea what they want to do. 
And the reality is they're just building a database of information that if they have to go through this again, they've learned a great deal about somebody already. So I think ultimately the answer to your question is it all depends on what you don't know about a given candidate. If the candidate you're bringing in is an assistant coach, you're going to care about how dense his play calling ability might be and how quickly you think he could make in-game adjustments. And you're going to want to see what it looks like for him to run the huddle of your meeting by way of example. But if you're talking about an existing head coach somewhere who has an incredible body of work from an actual coaching perspective, it is going to be radically more important to get a feel for them as a human being, their adaptability to the way you like to function and and yours to them. So I think it becomes much more of a get-to-know-me in that circumstance. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites and waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Woj. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Woj. ZipRecruiter.com slash Woj, W-O-J. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, Griff, I think especially with some rebuilding teams, this has become sort of a new practice. And it went on a few years ago at a couple places. I'm curious what you think of it, where a GM will bring in lots of guys, lots of assistant coaches. Guys think that I'm being brought in to interview for the head job. And what you're really being brought in for is to download information on players on those teams or, you know, maybe how you worked with a particular, hypothetically, David Vanterpool in Portland, who David has a chance to be a head coach someday in the NBA and has worked really closely with Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum. And, you know, somebody brings him in when he's a younger assistant and says, tell me what you did with them. Tell me how you worked and your you're getting that data. I understand why a team would do it and you want information that might help you in trades or free agency down the line. Is that how a coaching search should be run? Is it a, is that kind of a process fair to candidates? Yeah. So I'm not going to say it's how it should be run. I, I know it's how it is run often. And I think one of the one of the real questions would be, or, or the things that would define what I would believe to be the quote, rightness or wrongness of that interaction would be, are you interviewing the coach? Because in the case of, say, David Vanterpool, yeah, he may not be ready, but I'd like to get to know David and see Mm -hmm. if he's somebody that can be a head coach. Let me see what it's really all about with him. You know, David Fisdale was in that situation for a long time as well. He was the guy people would bring in. And people would at one time say, oh, they just want to download on the Miami Heat situation. What's it like working with Riley and how much control does he have and what are his right. players like? He was in that situation once. 
But eventually what happened was people figured out Fizz was was really capable of being a head coach. And the next time he came in, it was much more about let's get to know David. And so I think both things happen. As the sitting executive of a team, when another team calls and asks for permission to interview your assistant coach, the questions you ask at that point will reveal a great deal about what that team is really searching for. And it's not unusual for someone to deny permission for someone to interview initially, do it kind of on the down low a little bit, do it clandestinely, and see if that first team comes back again and shows legitimate interest. Because you're not going to just call R.C. Buford, by way of example, and do a kick-the-tires interview with one of Pop's assistant coaches unless you're really serious about that person for a head coaching job. So part of the way you run your organization can dictate whether or not those interactions that may not be totally above board even take place in the first place. You, you mentioned the Spurs. I admire them for this because it is not the case in a lot of organizations. They've done such a great job of identifying people, developing them in front office and in coaching, and then moving them and allowing them to move out and move up. And I think they've always seen it as part of their responsibility to help guys become head coaches. They have on their staff now, you know, James Borrego and d- different stages, different backgrounds, right? James Borrego, uh, Ime Aduke, and Ettore Messina, who, who all are NBA head coaching candidates. Becky Hammond certainly has a chance to go different directions if she wants. I think she's been pretty focused on the NBA and certainly the front office. We know, we know all the guys who've gone on. But they're going to ask you a lot of questions. They're not letting you go in for what, like you said, we're just going to try to bring someone in to download on the Spurs or what they're doing or how they're doing things. We want to know it's a serious interview. But they've really always been very open about wanting to help their guys get jobs. And there's probably whoever your agent is, there's probably no more important call you get as an owner or a GM than pop calling. Yeah, or, or RC calling, I think, and telling you somebody's ready and, and trying to help them move on. And it's been interesting how they've done it. And I think this year, you know, they, you know, at any conceivable year, they could lose two or three guys. Yeah. And I think, I think they've been good about wanting to have a tree. I also think they've been really good about suppressing information about people they, they want to hold on to longer. Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're not out carrying the flag for people that they're trying to get rid of. And, and or, or rather that they're trying to keep, right? So they're going through the process of, of really being mindful of continuing to grow and develop the deepest group of coaches and front office staff they possibly can. When Sean Marks left Brooklyn, it really hurt them. They, they didn't expect that timing, I don't think, and that was no, a big loss for them. And, and yeah. because of that, they probably weren't quite ready for that next step because – they envisioned Sean was going to be there for a certain subset of time. And so when an assistant coach that, that you're growing and in, in learning about and feeling good about gets a job that seems like a really big jump, sometimes that can set you back organizationally because the depth of your staff very often hinges upon this one person who's really a conduit for bringing everyone together. And so you can lose people that way 
that while I really embraced the idea of having a tree and very, very much wanted to have the deepest front office we could, and I think we achieved that to an enormous degree, I cared a great deal about putting our Canton head coaches into the NBA, and under Mike Gansey's leadership, we did that. I mean, we wanted to grow and develop people. But it also really hurts you when you lose the one who's sort of keeping it all together. And I think San Antonio's done a marvelous job of holding on to the one that they most need to have for as long as it takes to develop the Mm -hmm. next wave. I would think that one of maybe the prouder behind-the-scenes moments you might have had in Cleveland as GM was, you know, when, in fact, when Sean Marks went to Brooklyn and, you know, Kobe Altman was one of the targets in San Antonio and there are very few young executives in the league who, when they have a chance, and, and I think at that time, Kobe could have kind of continued the conversation and gone down to San Antonio and met with them, but I, I think he had a very good chance of, of getting a job there and essentially said, I'm going to be with Griff. I'm going to stay loyal to what we're doing here. I believe in what we're doing here, and I'm going to pass on that opportunity. That does not happen much in the NBA, and I thought it said a lot about what you had built there in your group, and I I imagine you didn't take that decision lightly because most guys anywhere in the NBA would, who were on their way up would probably see that as a a golden ticket to really fast-tracking up the ladder. Yeah, and it was. It was really, really meaningful uh, to me and to our group. Everybody felt really um, positive about that whole situation uh, in terms of the way we handled it and in the way that Kobe dealt with his side of things. We were really grateful that we had built the kind of family that people wanted to remain part of. Ironically, Trajan Langdon, who had been with us, left to go with Sean Marks. So when Sean took the job in Brooklyn, Trajan Langdon, who we had hired away from San Antonio that same year, so basically six months after joining us, Trajan made made the move to go be assistant GM in Brooklyn. That really is what opened up the the headroom for us organizationally to be able to take care of Kobe proactively before anyone came looking for him. And we knew how good Kobe was. Myself, Trent Redden, our whole basketball staff really understood how good Kobe was and how good he could become. And so we wanted to proactively create an opportunity to keep him because we knew someone was coming. We certainly didn't know it was going to be San Antonio, but we knew eventually someone was going to come. So I think one of the key things you do as an organization is proactively build in the headroom that people are going to need to grow and evolve and continue to get better. And so in just a really weird twist of fate, the fact that Trajan left us, who had also come from San Antonio, made it easier for us to create the opportunity that I think really spoke to Kobe and and made it so that he knew he was going to continue to grow and evolve in the direction he wanted to. It's funny too, like, and this is probably true in any business, but it goes a long way when someone kind of does what you did, which is sort of sense someone's going to come after my guy and doesn't wait until that offer comes and then is sort of reacting to it. That I think there's a show of good faith there that goes a long way with people when you say, listen, we're probably going to have to pay three times this to keep the guy if he gets an offer later. But if we just give him a raise now and promote his title, you know, he's going to feel more invested in this. And I'm still always surprised. And it's not just in your business and in any industry. 
Like people just sort of don't recognize that and don't just do it. But they don't. Some people need to be faced with, well, you need to go get an offer before we do anything. And sometimes by then, the guy's going to leave. Yeah. And, you know, I feel really grateful that I was raised in the Jerry Colangelo environment where Jerry and then Brian, they dealt with you in a very direct way. Jerry, I actually watched him do this more than once with players and with staff. Well, how much would make you happy? And you give a number. And he comes back and gives you more than that and says, and you're going to give a donation to XYZ. Does that sound about right? Hmm. So in addition to the fact that he was giving you more than you asked for, he was making you more magnanimous than you normally were as well. <laughs> it was a win-win all the way around. And I, I think it was something that I got to watch firsthand and see how incredibly powerful it is to have someone obviously care enough about you to give you something they don't have to give you. If the only thing that's going to make you stay is leverage, well, then you're gone anyway. And so I, I see it in other situations where people have in their contract they can't leave. Well, that's a very debilitating thing. And spiritually and emotionally, you begin to check out because you think you're not actually loved and cared for and respected. You're just a commodity. And, and I think that is where you make a lot of mistakes. How differently, Griff, if you come back into the league as a president GM, you're going to have more opportunities to look at jobs. How different is building out a front office now than, listen, I know it's a lot different than when you worked in Phoenix and everything was smaller, but what's become more important maybe in your mind or what's become more more valuable in this league, in this era, especially if one and done goes away. You have to go back into high schools potentially and, and you have to maybe expand your scouting. Neil O'Shea said something to me when we did the pod a month ago that he would almost look at it like he would have to treat high school a little bit like they do Europe. You would just have some maybe specialists there. But is the building out of a front office going to be different going forward for you than, than maybe even how you have done it based on the needs of running one in the league now? Well, I think just in terms of the the multitude of the points of contact, it's different. It, it's not different in terms of what you're really after, which is points of contact that have real relationships with players, that have the ability to reach and motivate people. And, and the more of those you have in the high school ranks, the better off you'll be. The, the more of those you have internationally, the better off you'll be. That's always been the case. It's just that there's so much more involved now in recruiting players and in building relationships that would help you be in the conversation. So Becky Bonner, by way of example, was a tremendous hire in Orlando. She's incredibly gifted at what she does, was really tied into both the NBA international programs, but USA basketball. And through USA basketball, she built real meaningful relationships with players. Becky becomes a point of contact then in the absence of her, you may not have with the national team and with all of those elite players. So identifying the people that have contact and ability to build relationships and who are incredibly successful in whatever avenue it is that they're currently processing themselves in becomes really important. It used to be a much smaller network of people that you needed to know. 
And I think what's happened is as the game has exploded and become so incredibly international, and because there's so many more opportunities for people to touch players, you know, once upon a time, Paul George is at UCLA. He's not at Fresno. Mm-hmm. So because these guys have spread out to such a huge degree now as well, you need more people, but the principles are still the same. You need to be able to raise a family that loves each other enough to tell each other what they need to hear. It's just you need to find where those people are in a wider expanse of of the universe than you did before. Griff, when you think of your time in Phoenix and, you know, you had – there were several coaches there during that time – what was the best coach front office relationship that you remember being a part of? So if you mean specifically Phoenix, I would say that the, the best relationship I saw from a front office coaching perspective was Brian Colangelo and Mike D'Antoni. I watched, you know, Brian had gotten to know Mike when Mike was in Italy. Brian really enjoyed traveling in Italy. He had married Barbara Patini, who's Italian. Um, so he really spent a great deal of time in Milan when Mike was there. And I, I think came to, and later in Treviso, and I think he came to really appreciate Mike. Sort of what I was talking about before, where you have intellectual curiosity about someone and over a period of time, you grow and evolve that. So their relationship grew so naturally and organically that I think they had a really strong bond. And, and I think that's really essential particularly in today's NBA where everything is so sensationalized and there's so much rumor and innuendo. Real meaningful relationships built on trust are more important than they've ever been. And and that was one of the better ones I ever saw. Griff, going back to Phoenix and the Hall of Fame class that was announced over the weekend, it was a, a who's who of Suns basketball history. But Steve Nash and Jason Kidd, you were there when they were there together. Steve was a younger player. Jason was was an established all-star. What were those practices like? What was it like watching those guys compete with each other, both kind of at different stages of who they were? Nash wasn't Nash yet, but when you'd walk in the gym and watch that, was it unlike anything you remember seeing in, in your time in the league? part of that period of time, we had Kevin Johnson as well. So we had the three of them. And it was truly remarkable to get to watch that. Jason was physically head and shoulders above Steve. From a physical standpoint, you, you really saw the sheer power and speed that Jason had as an enormous advantage over Steve. And Steve was just so skilled. And I think Jason forced Steve to become more skilled to grow and evolve in ways that he was going to need to to be successful. So to a huge degree, I think the player Steve became had a lot to do with needing to morph himself within those sessions to hold his own against Jason. If you're not highly skilled and creative and crafty, Jason can maul you. And because he's such a naturally competitive guy, he was certainly of the mindset to do it. And Kevin Johnson, very similar Kevin's an incredibly competitive guy. And if he has an advantage, he intends to use it. And so I I think it was almost a a fight or flight sort of situation for Steve. And he really (laughs) did get exposed to true greatness at a very early 
time in his career and, and understood if he was going to find greatness of his own, it was going to need to look a certain way. When Steve came back from Dallas, was immediately, Steve is a completely different person, player, or how much of it, when you look back, say, it was the opportunity to become a part of Mike's system that felt like that's what transcended him, or was he that? Was he going yeah, to be I, that? I anyway? do think it was the marriage of of, of Mike's system and, and Steve's gifts. You know, to a huge degree, our system was Steve Nash, and what it really was designed around was putting as much shooting on the floor as you could, putting as many long athletic athletes out there with him as you could to create triggers in an offense and and let Steve's incredible ability to read the floor dictate what those triggers yielded. And so Mike played at pace because we were going to play small, which was something he very much believed in going back to when he was with Rick Adelman in, in Portland. He really gave Adelman a lot of the credit for what he thought was the right way to play. So if there was a system he brought to the table, it very much came from Rick, and and Mike would be the first to tell you that. And where we were really blessed was Steve was just the perfect player to play at pace and to expose all of the opportunities that those triggers we were able to create in an offense presented. Griffin, you also had Grant Hill in Phoenix, and it was a little bit later – in his career, when he got to the Suns, where was he mentally and, and physically really in his career? I think he was looking for kind of a, maybe a second chapter, a second win to it all, and he got that with you guys. Yeah, he came at a time where he was just really grateful and joyful to still be able to compete at a high level. He felt good physically for the first time in a very long time. The strength and conditioning staff in Phoenix, Aaron Nelson, we call them the training staff mafia, <laughs> that group, Mike Elliott, they, they really put Grant under the sort of tutelage of Mike Clark in a place where physically he hadn't been. And remember the time we had Grant, he had missed almost four years of action, either shortened seasons or full seasons where he missed time. And so he felt fresh. His legs felt good. Like he didn't have a great deal of mileage on him for his age. And so he was excited about our system more than anything else. So he was excited about Steve Nash, who we already talked about. Grant was one of the first people to ever say Steve Nash probably should have been paid on a percentage of the money he made everyone else. He was so good at making everybody better. And Grant knew that. And he knew whatever he had left to give Mike and Steve were going to get it out of him. And so I, I think the situation really spoke to him and just put him in a position to enjoy the game again and to enjoy winning again. Yeah. And you, you know, you said that about him probably deserving a percentage. You think of the contracts he got at the time. Some guys stayed and got paid. Some guys left. And, and it was true of Jason Kidd. I really, you know, Scalabrini, <laughs> Scalabrini will always tell you that five year, $15 million deal he got in Boston. And, the one that I always was amazed by that Jason, I think, had a big part of in Jersey. Well, certainly Kenyon Martin getting a max deal, Richard Jefferson getting at the time almost eighty million dollars, and Jason Collins got it was like a four year, twenty six million dollar deal. Like I remember, Jason was a starting center for the Nets, and I want to say he went like a month or five weeks between field goals, like at one point, and uh, he got him paid and. Like, it really was remarkable what those guys meant for financially 
for their teammates. No question. And, and how much money did he make all of the rest of us that were in his orbit? <laughs> how, how much money did he <laughs> make Brian right. Colangelo thereafter and Mike D'Antoni? And I, I, nobody even knows my name in the world of basketball if I wasn't part of those Suns teams. So uh, on the court and off the court, people owe Steve and Jason enormous debts of gratitude. No, that's awesome. Hey, Griff, thanks, man, for taking time out to visit. Really enjoyed it as always. You bet, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, David Griffin. Remember, you can subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes of this podcast wherever you get your pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your shows. And a big thank you to today's sponsors, ZipRecruiter and Mattress Firm. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Woj Pod. We'll catch you next time.